Welcome everybody, my name is Mikal Nasrani, and this is Islam for Christians. Episode 3, A Very Short History of Islam. For future and more detailed episodes, it's important to have a primer on Islamic history. The basics of Islamic history are not generally known in the West, but a rough skeleton of the last 1400 years is critical for understanding Islam and Christian-Muslim relations. For simplicity, I'll break this into 10 easy-to-remember time frames. Number one, before the first revelation, 610 AD. Number two, the Mecca period, 610 to 622. Number three, the Medina period, 622 to 632. Number four, the rightly guided caliphs, 632 to 661. Number five, the Umayyad Caliphate. That's U-M-A-Y-Y-A-D Caliphate. 661 to 750. Number six, the Abbasid Caliphate. That's A-B-B-A-S-I-D, if you want to look it up later. 750 to 1258. Much longer time spans now. Number seven, the Mongol era, 1258 to 1503. Number eight, the gunpowder empires. That's the Ottomans, the Safavids, and the Mughals. And that's 1503 until about 1800. Number nine, decline and colonization, the 1800s to 1918. Number 10, the modern century, 1918 to the present. A quick note on dates. I'll be using the Christian calendar for dates. Um, the Muslim calendar is lunar, making it excessively confusing to the Western mind, and that includes me. It's not just a matter of subtracting 622 from the Christian date. A lunar year is about 354 days. In fact, the Christian and Muslim calendars will converge a little before the year 21,000. Number one, before the first revelation which is before 610 AD. The area that is now Mecca was an important place for Arabs commercially and religiously, but it was a remote backwater by world standards. Clashes of empires tended to happen well to the north at the crossroads of Europe, Asia, and Africa. It was a few dozen miles from the Red Sea, but well south of an area anyone would care about. To the east was, quite literally, nothing. A large, uninhabitable desert. It would be fair to compare pre-Islamic Mecca to Galilee, hardly a place someone would brag about. It was close enough to the main centers of the world, though, that other religious ideas got there, and there were Christians and Jews in the area, but most of the population were Arab pagans. They were polytheistic in the classic pre-Jewish sense, meaning they worshipped a specific god or gods, but never insisted their deities were the only ones that existed. Into this setting came the Kaaba, now known as the Big Q, Muslims pray toward, but then the house to all the main deities in the area. Once every lunar new year, Arabians from all over made a holy pilgrimage to the Kaaba, putting aside any wars to worship their respective gods in peace in Mecca. This is what made Mecca culturally significant, and it's the world into which Muhammad was born. When Muhammad was born in 570, his father had already been dead for six months. 
His mother died when he was six. He eventually landed with his uncle, Abu Talib, who was also leader of the Banu Hashim clan of the Quraysh tribe. In 595, at age 25, he married a 40-year-old woman named Khadijah. She was a successful merchant, and the two remained in a single monogamous marriage until her death. Muhammad was known as a trustworthy person and a problem solver and a mediator. For example, when he was helping to rebuild the Kaaba as a young adult, all the clans were fighting about who would return to this, the sacred black stone to its place once the reconstruction was finished. It was Muhammad's idea to use a blanket, place the stone on it, and have all the clan leaders put it back in place simultaneously. This reputation as a trustworthy mediator would later sir, save his people and launch the Hijra, or pilgrimage, which starts the Islamic calendar in 622. Number two, the Mecca period, 610 to 622. Muhammad received his first revelations in 610, visited in a cave by the angel Gabriel. Muhammad kept these revelations close at first, and the first Muslim was actually his wife, Khadijah. Other early converts were his friend Abu Bakr and his cousin Ali, who would become his son-in-law by marrying Muhammad's daughter, Fatima, later on. When Muhammad took his message public, his converts were quite similar to those of the early Christians. They were the downtrodden and despised of Meccan society. And, like Paul's patrons, many were women. Unfortunately, this made them very easy to persecute. One such persecution was of Bilal, famous for his massive frame and amazing voice, tortured by his master to convert before Abu Bakr bought him to save his life. Bilal, in his beautiful voice, would later recite the first ever call to prayer. Sumaya bint Kayat, a slave woman, would later become Islam's first martyr. Many fled to Abyssinia, present-day Ethiopia, which is right across the Red Sea, where they were granted asylum by its Christian king. Over time, more powerful members converted, the most prominent being Umar and Hamza. It should be noted that Abu Talib, Muhammad's uncle and protector, remained a pagan, but never removed his blanket protection of Muhammad. Then 619 was known as the Year of Sorrow because this is when both Muhammad's wife and uncle died. With Abu Talib dead, it was open season on Muhammad. He managed to find a new home in the city of Yathrib, which was looking for an arbiter to solve disputes between Arabs and the sizable Jewish population. Yathrib was about 200 miles to the north of Mecca, and Muhammad moved his entire community there in 622, marking year one of the Islamic calendar. Yathrib would soon be known as the city of the prophet, and in time it would be shortened to the Arabic word for city, which is Medina. Number three, the Medina period, 622 to 632. Muhammad established his religion in Medina, and he quickly converted many Arab pagans, and the community began to take advantage of Medina's location along an important trade route raiding the caravans of their persecutors in Mecca. This devolved into full-scale war, starting with the Battle of Badr in 624. The Muslims won despite being outnumbered three to one, and the resulting ransoming of captives brought considerable wealth into the community. The Meccans won a small battle at the Battle of Uhud, but couldn't win the war outright. Mecca, 
under Abu Sufyan, began to raise a larger army to wipe out the Muslims for good, eventually resulting in a siege of Medina in 627. In what came to be known as the Battle of the Trench, Meccan cavalry proved ineffective against the fortifications and the Meccans went home. It was after this battle that Muhammad ordered the killing of all men in the Jewish Banu Qurayza tribe. Depending on who you ask, it was either for religious or political reasons. The tribe allegedly tried to negotiate with the invading Meccans and attacked the city from the south. This was also the time Muhammad started taking on wives to cement alliances, starting with Abu Bakr's daughter Aisha, which is controversial by modern standards because she was very, very, very young when the two were married. In the end, Muhammad had an undetermined number of wives, but it was probably around a dozen. Eventually, a treaty was signed with the Meccans, but it quickly fell apart, and eventually the Muslims moved on Mecca itself in 629. Mecca surrendered without a fight, and Mecca has been a Muslim city ever since. Muhammad united the entire Arabian Peninsula under his religion in the ensuing years, and he died in Medina in 632. Number four, the rightly guided caliphs, 632 to 661. Here are four names to memorize. Number one, Abu Bakr. Number two, Umar. Number three, Uthman. Number four, Ali. These four were the rightly guided caliphs. And during this time, the caliphate had significantly more religious significance than the mostly political rulers that would follow them. The first successor was Abu Bakr rather than the much younger Ali. This would be the birth of the Sunni-Shia split, but that wouldn't be solidified for a few more generations. So Abu Bakr reigned for two years, 632 to 634. When Muhammad died, there was no succession plan, and the front runners were Abu Bakr and Ali. Abu Bakr eventually won majority backing from the companions, and he became the first caliph. Abu Bakr's reign was short, about two years, but he set in motion several critical things that would be completed by his successors. He began to codify a written Quran, spooked by 500 Hafiz, which is someone who had the Quran memorized, dying in a battle. He also began invasions of the Sassanid and Byzantine empires to the north. Before Abu Bakr died, he appointed Umar his successor. He was the only one of the rightly guided caliphs who was not assassinated, meaning it gets way more interesting from here. Number two, Umar, 634 to 644. Umar, U-M-A-R, is also sometimes spelled O-M-A-R. The first letter in Umar is actually a combination of an English O followed immediately by an Ein, which is a deep-throated ah sound that native English speakers, like me, can never pronounce well. For simplicity's sake, I'll just be saying Umar, spelled with a U. Anyway, Umar was a giant both physically and mentally, and in personality as well. For any history lovers out there, he was an Arab version of Peter the Great. In his 10 years as caliph, Umar practically killed off the Sassanid Empire based in Persia. He bit off a giant part of Byzantium as well, including Jerusalem. His rule stretched from Libya in the west to Afghanistan in the east, from the Arabian Sea to the south, and into what is now Turkey to the north. He was a notoriously simple man, eschewing luxury and living in a simple hut, and he created something similar to modern social security. 
Umar was stabbed to death by a Persian while he led a group prayer. Number three, Uthman. Uthman is almost universally considered the Ringo of this Fab Four, competent and talented in his own right, but no match for the gobsmacking talent of the others. He was a wealthy merchant with family ties to the Meccan elite. He expanded the empire a little bit to the east, but mainly maintained the area he inherited from Umar. He built the Muslim navy, but that would be used more by his successors. Uthman's main legacy is that he codified the final version of the Quran that we use today. Uthman was assassinated in his bed by Egyptian rebels. Number four, Ali, 656 to 661. So Ali finally got his chance, but he never got to rule the United Kingdom. His entire rule was during civil war with the Muawiyah, who was ruling Egypt and what is now Israel, Palestine, Lebanon, Syria, and Jordan. Muawiyah was Uthman's cousin, but just as importantly, or at least interestingly, he was the son of the original Meccan Muslim hater, Abu Sufyan, who had converted when Mecca fell. Ali moved the capital to Kufa in Iraq to, for strategic purposes, but he never regained control of the Western Empire. Ali was assassinated while praying praying by a Karijite. They had no political motive. They tried to kill Muawiyah too. The Karijites were basically a sect of violent Puritans, the intellectual ancestors actually of ISIS and Al-Qaeda. Number five, the Umayyad Caliphate. U-M-A-Y-Y-A-D Caliphate. Muawiyah was the first caliph of what became known as the Umayyad Caliphate. Islam was out, family was in. This was to be a hereditary dynasty, ironically locking in the family line of Islam's most notorious oppressor as a supposedly holy Muslim ruler. Not that there wasn't a fight. In 680, the second Umayyad caliph, Yazid, was directly challenged by Hussein, Muhammad's grandson. Hussein fought perhaps the most epic last stand in history, and most of his family died along with him. This was the real birth of the Sunni-Shia divide, and the Shias still believe in the primacy of Muhammad's family and commemorate the Battle of Karbala every year, which is where that last stand took place. Just type the word Ashura, A-S-H-U-R-A, into a search engine. Click on the images and you'll see some wild stuff. A uh, warning that's not for kids, it's pretty, pretty violent. This era's rulers expanded the empire west and over the Mediterranean bringing what is now Spain into the empire. Number six, the Abbasid Caliphate. That's A-B-B-A-S-I-D, 750 to 1258. The Abbasids, descendants of Muhammad's uncle, overthrew the Umayyad dynasty in 750. They would eventually center their caliphate in the new city of Baghdad, which would become a magnet for the world's intellectuals and the center of the Islamic Golden Age. The Umayyads did not die, however, and set up a parallel care of caliphate in Cordoba, Spain. This period contrasted vividly with the Dark Ages in Europe, and scholars of all religions came to Baghdad to translate the world's knowledge into Arabic. Modern mathematical terms like algebra and algorithm date back to this period and Baghdad resurrected the philosophy of ancient Athens in the Arabic language. 
The Abbasid kingdom eventually fell into several parallel caliphates, like the Fatimids in North Africa. This is where Saladin came from. This was also the period of the Crusades. The Crusades established the religious battle lines for years to come, with the dividing line ebbing and flowing between Europe and the Middle East. Number seven, the Mughal era. 1258 to 1503. During the Crusades, there were rumors across Europe of a great king in the East, a Christian king who would put Muslims to the sword and rampage across Muslim lands. They were half right. Genghis Khan was no Christian, and neither were his descendants who tore through a divided, weak Abbasid caliphate. In 1258, the Mongols sacked Baghdad, which was declining as an intellectual center, but still a critical depository of world knowledge. The Mongols destroyed the libraries, throwing all of the books into river like drunken apes. This wasn't just a disaster for Muslims. The whole world may have lost something incalculably valuable. The horde eventually receded, and the Muslims got the last laugh. The conquerors converted to the religion of the conquered. Khan is now a common Muslim name, particularly for those from the Pakistan area. The Ottoman Turks began to rise in the West taking Constantinople in 1453. Muslims were expelled in Spain in 1492, but the faith branched out into Sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia. Number eight, the Gunpowder Empire, the Ottomans, the Safavids, and the Mughals, 1503 until about 1800. Ottoman Empire. By far the most prominent, long-lasting, and significant of the three empires, the Ottoman Empire started with the unification of Turkish principalities in Anatolia, the landmass which is now known as Turkey. By 1453, the Ottomans had taken Constantinople and pushed into Europe at a furious pace. The Ottomans got as far as Vienna in 1529, 12 years after Martin Luther nailed up the 95 Theses. This was the height of Christendom's panic about the Ottomans, which reflected heavily in Reformationary thought. At its height, the Ottoman Empire spanned much of what Umar had conquered in the early days of Islam, ending in the east at the border of Persia, but also with control over Greek lands, the Balkans, and almost the entire circumference of the Black Sea. The empire receded slowly after this, receding into near irrelevance long before its dissolution after World War I, at least from a European perspective, even when it was clearly at death's door, though, the Ottoman Empire was significant because it still controlled all parts of the Muslim Holy Land, including Jerusalem, Mecca, and Medina. The Safavid Empire. The Safavid Empire was basically a Persian dynasty based in what is now called Iran, but also stretching significantly into its border countries. In the West, it stretched into what now might be known as Shia Iraq, and north into areas now occupied by Kurds. The eastern border runs through the middle of Afghanistan and parts of western Pakistan. This was the birth of modern Persia, or Iran. Just a note here, uh, Persia and Iran are almost the same thing. Persian is an ethnicity, and Iran is a state composed of more than Persians, but mostly Persians. Anyway, the significance of this kingdom is more religious than anything else. It created a safe haven for Shias, and in this case, Twelver Shiism. I'll explain that in a later podcast, but the gist of it is that there were 12 Ibans, or religious leaders, dating back to Ali, the first one, Hassan the second, 
Hussein III, etc. The 12th Imam went into something called occultation in 869 and will return with a figure called the Mahdi during the second coming of Jesus. Twelver Shiism, to this day, is the national religion of Iran. Then the Mughal Empire. This is probably the most significant empire that Western history students never learn about. It was founded by a descendant of Genghis Khan, and like the earlier Mongols, the original Mughal warriors were a steppe people that swooped into the lands of more settled peoples and overwhelmed them with martial skill and ferocity. The Mughal Empire was technically a Muslim empire, but ruled over many areas that were neither Muslim nor ever became Muslim. It consisted mostly of what is now Pakistan, India, and Bangladesh. The empire created peace and stability for several centuries, creating an exceptional wealth that would later make it to that would later make India the crown jewel of the British Empire. This area, this era is best known by the Taj Mahal, which was built by a Muslim Mughal ruler. Number nine, decline and colonization, 1800s to 1918. When the Ottomans were at the gates of Vienna in the 16th century, Islamic warriors looked like an unstoppable force ready to sweep through Europe. How amazed those same people would be to know that just a few hundred years later, the unstoppable tide was actually flowing the other way. As the decline of all non-European empires continued in the 19th century, Almost every part of the Muslim world was ruled in some way by Christians. The Ottoman Empire was weak and had shrunk to Turkey plus some holy lands. The Twelver Kingdom of Persia was still mostly independent but lost a great amount of territory to Russia. And the English had completely overrun the Mughals. North Africa was under French and British control. The more recently Islamized Southeast Asia, what is now Malaysia and Indonesia, was ruled by the British and the Dutch. By 1918, when the Ottoman Empire dissolved after World War I, former Ottoman territories such as Syria, Palestine, Transjordan, Iraq, and others were ruled by Christians. At least the holy cities of Medina and Mecca remained Muslim, under who would later become the founders of Saudi Arabia. But even then, Ibn Saud owed his throne in part to the British. Number 10, the last century. Following World War II, many Muslim states gained independence, but had to deal with the legacy of their colonial past. This led to a love-hate relationship with modernity and laid the grounds for Islamic fundamentalism. Whatever Islam was, it was indigenous, and it was seen by many as a tool for reclaiming a culture with too much unwanted Western influence. The prism for this became the conflict with the State of Israel, founded in 1947. This only led to more humiliation, though, and Israel not only existed and prospered, it annihilated the entire Arab world in successive short wars in 1967 and 1973. The old Sunni-Shia war never died down either. The same conflict that started with Abu Bakr and Ali is still being fought. Ali is Iran, eastern Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon. Abu Bakr, or also Muawiyah, is Saudi Arabia. Turkey, the United Arabs, and other Sunni states. So there it is. Islamic history in less than a half hour. Pretty efficient, huh? Congratulations, you now know more about Islamic history than 90% of people in the Western Hemisphere. So thank you, and I will talk to you next time. Inshallah.
Thank you for listening to Islam for Christians. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to keep this show ad-free, you can also visit my Patreon page and subscribe. I'm at patreon.com slash Islam for Christians. That's patreon.com slash Islam for Christians.